Hello, and welcome to Knoll Country for Old Men. We're a podcast about board games, tabletop role-playing games, and tabletop war games. And today, we're going to be talking about Soviet board games. This is my area of, quote, expertise. So this is an episode, which means you guys get to listen to me for an hour and a half talking. I don't think we're going to run to an hour and a half, but uh, let's make it three hours. Listen to him talk about Soviet board games for three hours or your money back. Excuse me, my pronouns are we and ours. At least they are for today. As always, I'm your host, Troy. My pronouns are he and him. And I'm Ed. You've already heard me talking. My pronouns are they and them. But before we get into Soviet board games, we have a segment on this podcast we like to call The Weekend Hobby. Ed, you can go first. For whatever reason, nobody's doing any construction or maintenance, so my job has been very slow lately, so I've been doing a lot of hobby shenanigans. Most of it is working on Lannisters for Song of Ice and Fire. Got the first unit finished. They look fantastic. Uh, did a comparison of my first unit for a large army game that I painted like 22 years ago. And the difference in quality and difference in time is kind of nuts. Uh, right now I'm working on a unit of House Clegane Heavy Infantry. They're going a bit slower because they don't have one uniform color like the Lannisters do. They're mostly like heavy plate mail, but then they also have little bits of yellow coat of arms or like yellow fabric that protrude either under or go on top of the armor. So it's been a little bit slower. And then as part of that unit, I have Brian of Tarth because in my universe, she has uh, turned traitor and now works for the Lannisters instead of for the Starks. And her stuff is all bright blue. So uh, just a little bit slower because I can't do quite the same uniform paint job that I did for the other uh, Lannister units. And then try to do some miscellaneous stuff to just improve my hobby area. And playing some Night Vault against myself. Uh, I got Night Vault several years ago with the intention of playing it competitively. Because I think it was either the local store or our local GW store that was doing competitive Warhammer Underworlds, but because I worked at night and had a really awful schedule, I just never got around to it. And it's pretty good. I do think G-dubs need some new technical writers for their rules because uh, while the game is pretty simple, it's written in a very confusing manner, and I'm running into some issues of like needing points in-game to do things that will help me capture objectives. But to get those points, I have to capture objectives. But all the cards that let me capture objectives are all things that I can't do until I upgrade my dudes. So I don't know if I've done the setup wrong or if I'm just not familiar enough with the mechanics, but I feel like something is not quite right at the moment, but I'm sure I'll get it figured out. Yeah, uh, board game rules can sometimes be a little tricky. I would recommend looking up online, seeing if other people have had this same sort of problem. Because that's something that a lot of times can, uh, well, you know how it works. Yeah, I remember watching videos of it uh, being played. And while I could follow along, I was still just a little bit confused as to what was happening in what order. And I think... Part of it could be GW's propensity for naming things weirdly, but there is no copyright value for doing that. Yeah, that's a classic GW move. So, like, when I when we're talking about a board game and I say a phase, what does a phase to you refer to? Uh, element of a turn. Yeah, no, in this game, phases are entire turns, and then you have steps, and then you have sub-steps, 
And I feel like 90% of the issues that I'm having with trying to follow the rules could be better if they just named them like every other board game uses the conventions. For some reason, they feel like they have to be special and do it their own way. Of course they do, because that's Games Workshop. I like to rag on Games Workshop, but Underworlds is one of the games that I think actually is one of their better properties, and it's a good way for people who want to be involved in the Warhammer uh, universe, but not necessarily want to play an actual army game. It's a good way to dive into that, and the uh, settings that come up for it are interesting, because they're generally like some kind of underground place, hence the name Underworld. So you have the City of the Dead underneath a mountain, under the ocean, and then I don't remember what the new one is, but it's an interesting game. I wish they would keep more copies of the older stuff in print, because unless you get them like once as the game is current, as soon as they move on to a new season, it's hard to find the old stuff, but I like it. Hopefully I can actually finish my uh, models for that one and do it competitively whenever the pandemic ends. Please. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that would be nice. So what did you do this week? I was traveling, helping someone move, helping some family move to a different state, or at least move a bunch of their stuff. So I did not play any games. I did not run any D&D sessions. I did not play any board games. I did not paint any miniatures. Did you at least play like travel chess, with a little magnetic chess set? No, because I was driving a moving truck for like six hours a day. Oh, come on, man. You can you can multitask. I can. I'm not going to lose at chess while I'm also driving a truck down the highway. <laughs> it. If you capture that night, I'm going to throw this truck right off the highway. Yeah, if you capture that night, we're not stopping until we get to the city and there won't no rest stops, no gas, nothing. So yeah, my weekend hobby was, there was no weekend hobby. It was a weekend driving. There was only a week. Yeah, it didn't even go to any particularly interesting hobby-related locations. Any particular reason or just didn't get around to it? The people I was helping move wouldn't have been interested. I guess that's I guess that's true because you're you're kind of stuck with them. You're not necessarily gonna be wandering around the Southwest on your own. Definitely not, especially because the only vehicle we had was a moving truck. True. One of my favorite elements of getting to travel places for projects and work is uh, going to see all the the different board game shops and whatnot. I mean, they're generally all the same. Uh, except for Gaming Goat in Vegas, which had pretty much their entire stock on discount, which was pretty sweet. That is pretty sweet. It uh, just adds a little bit of spice to traveling. All right, so with our weekend hobby taken care of, whether it be a lot of painting or a lot of nothing, let's begin our main topic. Soviet board games! <laughs> The Soviet Union, either either the world's best or worst labor union, depending on your point of view. Hero of the Soviet Union, you're a hero of the Soviet Union, you're a hero of the Soviet Union, now get back in the coal mine. <laughs> I serve the Soviet Union. So for me, Soviet Union is a weird fascination, pretty much always been fascinated by Soviet Russia, potentially because it at least started out as a seemingly genuine attempt to rebuild uh, something better for the masses until like the French Revolution it went uh, horribly horribly wrong namely uh, Stalin Trotsky and Lenin come at me bros I mean I would say the first point of it going horribly horribly wrong is yeah like you're saying the October Revolution or whatever when the communists when the communists seize power from the Bolsheviks and then the second part of it going horribly, horribly wrong is Stalin becoming general secretary instead of Trotsky. Yeah, I think I think you're a little bit backwards. It was the uh, the Bolsheviks who uh, seized power. Okay, the Bolsheviks seized power from the communists. Yeah, I, I, there's many groups with many names, and I don't. I remember the vaguely what happened. 
Yeah, you have, like, the Mensheviks, who were kind of like the, kind of like your garden variety leftists, I guess. They were the ones who were kind of poised to be in charge after the provisional government collapsed, and then the Bolsheviks and Lenin came in and just ruined everything uh, for the working class for the last 120 years. So, thanks, Lenin. Yeah, Lenin. Anyway, uh, so what happens... uh, when you have a brand new country uh, that just finished a revolution in two really horrible wars, uh, you need to teach your children the values of your new nation. Sorry, my train of thought just derailed there. Was it an armored train of thought being used by the Czech Legion as they did a crazy maneuver and ran all the way across Russia? That's potentially. Because that's the best train. So... For those who don't know, the Russian Revolution occurred in the uh, early 20th century between around 1918 and the 1920s. In terms of board games and board game technology at that time, uh, it was still relatively new. A lot of your board games you had were uh, very didactic, and so they were intended to try and teach like the morals or some kind of skill for whatever... Uh, culture they happen to be in. So you get things like uh, snakes and ladders, uh, with the ladders being virtue and the snakes being vice. You have other games that focus on like geography and learning places or learning how to write or uh, morality, like Game of the Goose. That one pops up quite a bit. Um, in 1886, you have one in the United States called Merit Rewarded, which is about... Uh, delivering newspapers as a paperboy and is one of the first games that really focuses on like the virtues of capitalism. Ooh. <laughs> Around the same time, uh, Soviet board games, Soviet slash Russian board games, uh, kind of do the same thing. First really notable one during world war one, uh, you would have the Soviet version of battleship, which was actually played by, uh, Russian naval officers just on like graph paper And it was just kind of a thing that they did when they weren't busy abusing the sailors. Um, But it eventually became its own very similar game to what we're familiar with in the U.S., even to the point of having, like, an electronic version that makes noises and has lights and whatnot. What year did you say they started playing this? Uh, This was going back to, like, 1900. Okay, cool. So they may or may not have played it during the voyage of the 2nd Pacific Squadron? It is, it is very Pacific. Uh, <laughs> it is very possible that the, that the, the Russian Navy played Battleship uh, during their fateful voyage. And if the Japanese didn't yell, uh, or if somebody on the, on the Navy didn't say, you sunk my Battleship, I'm going to be very disappointed. History did us dirty on that one. I mean, I'm just imagining them playing it during the thing and hitting their own ships somehow. Oh, yeah. That sounds like a, uh, a czarist Navy thing to do. Yeah, especially the 2nd Pacific Squadron. That sounds exactly like something they would somehow manage to do while playing Battleship is hitting their own ships or hitting a British na- a, a British fishing ship somehow. Yeah, so pre... In the, in the space kind of like pre-revolution and up until... The October Revolution and after the Civil War, you have a lot of just very traditional board games. Uh, you have playing cards, checkers, chess, etc. But after after the Revolution, after the Civil Civil War is settled, uh, you've got to teach all these newly minted Soviet children uh, the virtues of their new nation. So you get a lot of games that revolve around uh, warfare, propaganda, or some kind of uh, civic virtues so there's a lot that focus on the russian civil war uh there's reds versus whites uh which is a very nationalist type of game uh maneuvers a game for young pioneers uh which is like nationalism and life skills uh you have morse code which is kind of more like a toy but it's essentially just a very simple telegraph uh that you can use to send messages back and forth Um, Another one was electrification, which was about bringing electricity from the cities to the rural areas. 
so there's a very big focus on making sure that these board games that are coming out are promoting the new the new Soviet values and the way that these values show up is what's called uh, socialist realism, which I guess you'd call it an art movement if an art movement can be uh, government mandated. I've read some stuff about the socialist um, art style, and there is a reoccurring theme in sort of totalitarian governments um, throughout the 20th century where whatever the initial revolutions like cool art style and revolutionary fervor, once it starts to become a strong state, it switches to a very conservative, very quasi-realistic art style that is always seems to just evoke weirdly similar things, whether it's in uh, fascist Germany or Italy. Well, okay, Italy's kind of the one weird exception, but under in fascist Germany, in Soviet Russia, in communist China, North Korea, they all end up kind of going towards the same traditional realist style. It's a weird art history quirk. With these uh, early board games in the uh, the late teens, early 20s, um, they have that very traditional Russian printmaking style, which is actually really cool. If you haven't seen much of uh, early 20th century Russian art, I highly recommend it. It's some good stuff. Um, so you get uh, a lot of that art style that comes through. And then as things in the Soviet Union start to kind of solidify and the government starts to take more direct control over the culture, um, you get the uh, People's Commissariat for Enlightenment, which was what directed a lot of the cultural and artistic life of the Soviet Union. That is a fantastic name. Yep. And previous previous to that, you had this kind of weird spot in between the fall of the Tsar and the October Revolution, where even a little bit into the October Revolution, where there was a lot of newfound artistic freedom. So people started, you know, experimenting and doing new things and trying stuff that the Tsar wouldn't let them. And then the Bolsheviks are like, oh, wait, um, art can influence how people think and what they do. So we need to kind of clamp down on that. So that's where socialist realism comes in, which was defined by the Russian writer Maxim Gorky as proletarian, so it's accessible to the workers. Typical is something that, you know, is everyday life. Realistic, that one's pretty obvious. And partisan, as in it supports the Soviet party. And they wanted to have all these ideals help build what they called the the new Soviet man or the new Soviet woman. Um, new Soviet man was self selfless, educated, healthy, muscular, and enthusiastic about the revolution. So these are all qualities that they wanted to instill uh, within the young children of the new nation. And one of those ways that you can do that is through board games and what they do recreationally. So that's kind of the early history of board games in the Soviet Union. Once you get to Stalin and World War II, things go pretty quiet because, honestly, the uh, Soviet Union had more important things to do than board games. And even up into the 50s and 60s, I found it hard to find a whole lot of what was going on with like Soviet leisure culture at the time. Um, and as far as I can think for just kind of board game history in general, there's not really a whole lot super interesting that happens in the 50s and 60s. It's kind of like a weird lull in board gaming. I mean, in the U.S., you're in the 50s and 60s, you start to get the, like, Hasbro starts really churning out the basic board games that everyone is vaguely familiar with mm -hmm. in what is essentially their modern form, stuff like Candyland and Monopoly and just 
uh, I guess even battleships, stuff like that starts to get churned out in more than just small amounts, in like mass media amounts. Mm-hmm. But I, in the Soviet Union, I guess they start playing chess more. Yeah, because they didn't. There really wasn't that same concept of like mass consumer media in the Soviet Union. You had state media, so that kind of that kind of mass cultural production, at least for board games, doesn't really happen even with that period, uh, which they called the cultural thaw, where things started to open up a little bit uh, after Stalin uh, snuffed it, and people were like, "Yeah, Stalin did a lot of bad stuff. Maybe let's." turn some of that back uh you started to have a little bit more liberalization of the culture a little bit more international exchange between the soviet union and the rest of the world um but there still wasn't really just that mass entertainment culture but as you did mention uh chess becomes a big thing and chess has pretty much always been a big deal in the soviet union uh, prior to the revolution, it was a game of the upper classes. You know, it's something that the nobles and the czar would play, and peasants, uh, yeah, no chess for you. Uh, this happened particularly because Lenin was a really big fan of chess, and one of one of his uh, slogans in the early revolution was "Chess to the masses," which that's a that's a good slogan. That's a that is certainly a slogan. Although I'd say there's better games to send to the masses like go well i, I was gonna say like warhammer 40k for the masses you're all playing imperial guard now <laughs> i mean yeah 40k to the masses would be a good slogan because then they would get more players and have less weird shenanigans yes but also we're collectivizing ownership of games workshop so uh it's now the state's games workshop. Let's do it. So prior to the yeah prior to the revolution, chess was an upper class thing. Um, after the revolution, it seeps more into popular culture, and it becomes a thing that the Soviet government actively pushes. Um, they like that it teaches strategic thinking. It's something that's very simple to play. I guess maybe I should put "simple" in air quotes because I'm really bad at chess. Um, and chess sets are accessible. It's not like a board game where you have to find an artist, make them do the, <clears throat> make them do the art, do the printing, have somebody to write the rules, figure out do these rules follow our uh, didactic socialist realism model. No, chess is chess. You just you make the pieces and then the people play. But isn't chess highly classist? Not anymore. You have an entire rank of pawns. Oh, like communist chess should just be two ranks of pawns and uh, maybe we convert the bishops to commissars. Well, there is a variant of chess called Peasants Revolt where one side has, I think, just knights, bishops and rooks with the king and queen and the other is all pawns and a king. Yeah, Go would probably have been better as a communist game, as all the pieces are equal in Go. That is true. But also, Russia has historically been super racist. Also And true. them bringing in a game from another culture is very unlikely. Yeah, considering that uh, Tsar Nicholas II uh, nearly got his face sliced off by uh, a samurai, I don't think he would be very prone to wanting anything Japanese in his culture. Go is technically Chinese, and then also Japanese and Korean, but yes. Although, perhaps, if his face had been sliced off by a samurai, then the revolution would have kicked off earlier and would have loved Japan. See, if that dude, if he'd only had better better blade control, the whole of the 20th century would just be so much different. Yeah, while you were playing Go, he studied the blade. Yep. So following World War II, chess kind of explodes in Soviet culture to the point where it develops its own distinctive play style called the Soviet School. I'm not familiar enough with the game of chess to know what exactly makes the Soviet School different from other schools other than it's supposed to be a very aggressive play style. 
but the government opened up training centers for chess and they considered it a sport just like any other actual like Olympic sport. And this was a huge source of national pride for the Soviets and they become pretty much the dominant power in chess. And even in, in the modern day, the Russians, they, they do pretty well. Um, and in the 1930s, Soviet chess players were the first athletes to be allowed to travel internationally to compete. So chess players have a really important spot in Soviet culture at this point. Um, it was taught in primary schools, which, I mean, I kind of wish chess had been taught in elementary school. It would have been a little bit less boring. Um, you had pioneer palaces, which are kind of like community centers or like rec centers. Um, they would host tournaments and teach people how to play there. Public parks would have permanent chess tables, and you can easily find a lot of photos of just entire parks filled with people, and they're all playing chess. Um, towards the end of the Cold War, it starts to wane in popularity a bit, but it's still pretty popular. Um, but I'd say probably during the 50s and 60s, uh, chess would be the most common game that you would find um, people playing in the Soviet Union. And then you get into the period that they call stagnation, which lasts from the 70s up until the late 80s. And then obviously everything collapses in the, in the early 90s. So this is where things start to kind of fall apart and the government starts to clamp back down on all of its liberal liberalization that had been going on previously. And uh, the games that start to be produced are mundane, I guess would be the best way that I could put it. They still have some of that uh, like teaching and indoctrination quality, but it's been turned down from like an 11 down to like maybe a five. Um, so you get, yeah, you get topics like geography and travel. Um, there's one from 1981 called Hero Cities where you travel around to you know, various places in the Soviet Union that are important to the history. And it'll tell you a little blurb about, you know, what happened at this particular spot. Um, there's one called Young Drivers from 1976, which is supposed to teach uh, like traffic rules and how uh, how driving is supposed to work. In this particular period, uh, the 70s and 80s travel games uh, become prevalent, uh, most likely because you had a lot of people who were able to move around. Um, a lot easier with uh, things like the LADA and mass transit. Uh, you get space travel, obviously, with the, uh, the space race. There's Into Space, Adventures on the Moon, great space travel. Um, Into Space from 1979 actually looks interesting. It has a very nice art style that I like. You also start to get more folk tales that make their way back into uh, Soviet games. There's one called Old Lock from 1988, which is kind of a castle adventure. You move through the castle and uncover various things. Uh, you get Industry. Uh, we Are Captains from 1981 is about fishing. Harvest is from 1987. You have a board that has like four apple trees on it, and there's little plastic apples on it. You spin a spinner, and it tells you like how many apples to take off. Um, Manager, which is a Monopoly knockoff, shows up in 1988, and it is, yeah, Soviet Monopoly. How 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 does that work? <laughs> I think it's it's meant to be more about like managing like a state-run business, but it play it plays almost exactly the same as Monopoly. But uh, the the railroads are already nationalized. You can't get. Uh... The state has the monopoly already. <laughs> you're just you're just playing as a middle manager. Yeah, that was one that I probably I probably should have read a little bit more on uh, to uh, answer some of those questions for you. But finding information about the specifics of Soviet board games uh, it's tricky. I mean, especially tricky if you don't speak Russian, right? Yeah, my Russian is really bad. Google Translate does a pretty good job. But even then, just finding even uh, people in Russia who are board game enthusiasts and like have written about the history, 
or people who lived in the Soviet Union and are able to write about, you know, these are the games I played growing up are very few and far between. I mean, obviously at the time there was, there were more important things to be writing and reminiscing about as concerns the Soviet Union. I have to ask, did you have to stand in line for board games the same way you did for all the other consumer goods? Um, maybe. I don't know. I couldn't, I couldn't really find any information about like how these were sold because they're, they're consumer products. And so you would, I would assume you would have to go to just the state run store like any others and they would just have them there. Um, they were produced by basically state owned publishing houses, Soviet Union and like intellectual property and how that is produced is its whole, its own whole issue. So I'm not super familiar with how these would have been sold, but I assume you would either get them like special ordered out of, you know, some kids leisure magazine or something like that. Or, you know, if they have like a bookstore section of your local Soviet state owned store, maybe they would have those there kind of like how we sell board games along with books here. But unfortunately that was actually not something I could really find any information on. If you're, if anybody from Russia is still listening and doesn't hate our guts, uh, drop a comment and tell us about your experiences with Soviet board games. Or, you know, anyone from Ukraine who lived through the era when it was part of the Soviet Union. Yeah, Ukraine. Tell us about your board games. I didn't think to look up uh, Ukrainian board games. Well, I mean, based on many Soviet Union things... I would guess a substantial amount of them were actually made in the Ukraine, even if they were perhaps designed in Moscow and St. Petersburg. That is uh, greater than a distinct possibility. Given that that's where a lot of the um, industry and economic stuff was. Yep. So during the stagnation era, um, board games in general become pretty inoffensive i would say from like a government or an ideological standpoint they they promote you know like the soviet the soviet economy you have industry uh science with like the space travel uh history and geography with all the traveling games but they're not the same rabid like nationalistic uh games that you find during the early soviet union you know, you're not going to find a game called Chemical Warfare about uh, trying to not die in a gas attack in the 1980s. And I think that's going to be mostly chalked up to how the government just kind of tightened down on everything. And you just, if you're making your board games, you don't want to ruffle anybody's feathers. And it's like, just make a board game about harvesting apples. It's fine. It's proletarian. Nobody's going to bat an eye. So, yeah, mundane is kind of how I would describe things, but it's also when things seem to start to kind of ramp up a little bit, and I think you see the same in European and American board games, is that's when just the idea of board games starts to take off more than it had previously. Yeah, so then at the at the end of the Soviet Union, obviously in the 1990s, um, there is an interesting thing that happens. You start to see some bleed over from RPGs and fantasy games, which is something that hasn't shown up until now. Um, as you get more of the, the openness and, you know, you get your Pizza Huts and your McDonald's opening in Moscow, uh, other cultural influences from outside the Union start to show up. And so you get games like Enchanted Country in 1990, uh, which was... I think the first uh, role-playing game developed in the Soviet Union that was inspired by D&D. There's another series called Koshiv Chain, which I would equate to being kind of similar to the fighting fantasy book series. They're not quite RPGs, but they're not quite just choose-your-own-adventure novels. So I found that to be interesting, that that, that genre in particular starts to show up um, and hadn't shown up previously. But with how how tightly everything was clamped down in the 70s and 80s when D&D and RP, tabletop RPGs became a thing, um, 
a game that allows you that much leeway and potential creative or freedom of thought, I don't think would have been something that the Soviet government would have been super into in the 70s and 80s. So you really have to wait for things to start to kind of unwind in the 1990s before those start to show up. Yeah. Uh, let's see. So what else? So yeah, 1990s, Soviet Union, it all it all comes crashing down. And that's the end of Soviet board games, because without the Soviet Union, how can you have Soviet board games? Yeah, but then you've then you've got uh, the replacement of the Soviet Union, the Russian Federation. We gotta we gotta bring this into the present day, son. So yeah, chess uh, kind of drops off in popularity following the collapse. Uh, you do end up with an interesting variant called business chess, which is a collaborative chess game where you have two teams. Each side is playing, you know, either the black pieces or the white pieces. And they have to come to a consensus as to how to actually make their moves, which I find to be an interesting variant. And then right now, the Russian Federation is kind of undergoing a similar board game renaissance like the U.S. and Europe, if maybe a few years behind. Um, Spyfall, that game originated in Russia. Uh, there's been a couple of different variants. Uh, DC Spyfall is the one that I've played. Um, potion making practice, which came out in the early 2000s, was intended to capture the popularity of Harry Potter. So you're at a wizard school making potions. Uh, you get Origin of the Species in 2010. Uh, zombies, Run for Your Life. Kitchen Garden, Kings Under the Mountains. Uh, the Jam, which is about making jam at Babushka's house and has a very delightful kind of traditional Russian art style. Um, so you see a lot of diversity of theme that you see in modern American and European board games. I haven't found anything super overtly nationalistic or nationalistic regarding the Russian Federation, but that can and probably will change. Who knows? I it it first they're going to have to be able to afford to print stuff, which may or may not be true with the sanctions they've got on them now. It's it's a problem. <laughs> but yeah, I've, I find it interesting that, you know, as soon as soon as the Russian Federation is kind of able to reconnect with the rest of. I guess, popular world culture, they kind of they kind of sync up. Even if they're, you know, a little bit behind, but you wouldn't necessarily be able to, like, look at a board game now and be like, oh, this is a board game from Russia or the Soviet Union compared to, like, past ones, because they have just that essence of Soviet socialist realism baked into it. Um, that's not really there anymore. And so, you know, you could pick up a game off the shelf at your local store, and it could be one that was designed in Russia. And unless you looked at the names of the designers and where it was produced, you would never know, which I find kind of interesting. And, yeah, just in general, I found that Soviet... Russian and U.S. board games, they all tend to kind of fill just a, the same niche within the culture of, like, trying to balance promoting whatever, you know, ideology or culture subscribes to, teaching basic life skills or some kind of life lesson, and then, you know, some amount of just human creativity, and those kind of all bleed through in just about everything and just shows that the need for fun and the need for that creativity is kind of a universal human concept. Cause I was expecting to see just a lot of really weird stuff come out of the Soviet union and you know, their games would be so alien and so different from what we had here in the U S and honestly, they're not all that different. They're just, they have their themes maybe turned up to 11 in a way that you don't necessarily see elsewhere but they serve similar functions in the culture and they they follow they follow similar themes so you kind of get that just that human element that's a common denominator between all of them i mean they are they do come from a culture that has you know russian culture which is sort of the basis for soviet culture because 
Russia was the core of the Soviet Union, is, you know, has been intertwined with European culture for hundreds of years um, and tries to see themselves as European. So it's not that odd that their, like, concepts for what they would want in board games are similar to the things that other Western nations would see and want in board games. Yeah, and I didn't I didn't really touch on it much because I feel like traditional games are more outside of the topic that I was trying to get to. Uh, but things like checkers, dice, uh, playing card games, those are all very popular during the Soviet Union pretty much from the beginning until the end. Um, so, you know, it's not not just the board games, but, you know, other other elements of gaming culture from that shared European heritage, you know, that's also there. Um, one interesting point I forgot to make about uh, chess is that I couldn't find any real analog for something in the U.S. that would be as have such a massive following as chess did in the middle period of the Soviet Union and just how ubiquitous and popular it was. I don't even know if Go in East Asia is... I don't know if that even comes close to just how prevalent chess was in Soviet culture. I think the closest thing is going to be team sports. Yeah, uh, gridiron football was the only thing that I could think of in at least U.S. culture that would be similar as far as it's a game that everybody knows. Most people are probably going to have, you know, some favorite, even if they're just like, yeah, I'm picking a team at random. And even if they're not into the game, they're going to know what it is and generally know how it works. Honestly, for the time period, I think baseball might be a better choice. Yeah, for yeah for that middle 20th century, baseball would be better. If I had to go with like a contemporary example, like NFL would be the one I would go with. But yeah, I think you're right. Baseball would be. In that time period, everyone understood baseball. There were minor league teams everywhere. It was also seen as a clearly American thing. You know, baseball and apple pie and... I'm sure there's... There's probably academic papers or other research out there that's been done regarding the this mass popularity of chess versus something else. Because Soviet Union was also very big into uh, physical fitness and I'd say more so individual sports than team sports, oddly enough. But the fact that a board game, you know, outshadowed all of these other sports, the Soviet Union... Uh, I put air quotes, was good at, uh, depending on how much they cheated in that particular Olympics. The fact that chess was bigger than that was, that's, I don't know. I've got no explanation for that. It's the thing that, sort of like baseball, it doesn't require a whole lot of equipment to actually do. It, it It's stuff that everyone kind of has or is easy to get. Because baseball, you need a glove, a ball, and a bat. And I guess an open field. Chess, you need a board and pieces. Yeah, and I guess if you're if you're doing hockey, you need a hockey rank and a team. If you're doing gymnastics, you need you need a gymnasium. If you're doing fencing, you need fencing gear. Um, I can't think of other popular Soviet sports off the top of my head. Swimming, you need a swimming pool. In the, in this case, it's something that was easy to do. The rules are generally understood by everybody. And it doesn't have as much of an age limitation as some of the other stuff does. Gymnastics, even if you're just trying to, like, do flips and stuff or vaulting or something, you really can't do it if you're older. Whereas chess, you can play for a long time. And baseball, you know, there's adult softball leagues and stuff. It's, it's fairly easy to play. So yeah, I would say baseball is probably the equivalent of chess. Chess is the equivalent of baseball. Just one has teams and one is about controlling a team. Yeah, so that's that's my rough and dirty research of uh, Soviet board games. Don't cite me in a uh, an academic paper. You're probably not going to do very well. Or cite us if you want to do poorly in your academic paper. I mean, if you... If this was like something that I actually like wanted to write a whole thesis on, I'm I'm sure 
that information is out there. Um, I would just need to work a lot harder to find it. And I don't, I haven't found many extant copies of a lot of these board games, especially the really early ones. A lot that seems to remain of them is just their artwork and I guess kind of the shock value of just how violent and nationalistic some of these early games were. Um, I would really like to be able to actually play some of these games and see how they follow the track of board game evolution. Um, a lot of these, you know, you can just look at the the photographs and be like, oh, yes, this is a, you know, racing game of going from A to B, or this is some kind of, uh, like, manual dexterity game, or this is a game of chance. Um, but being out, being able to actually play some of these and see how they function would be nice. But again, my Russian is terrible, and uh, rules and actual copies of these games are extremely few and far between yeah that is a bit of a downside of looking at historical board games is a lot of times they don't get saved because people think it's a board game and not something that has actual historical value and i mean honestly also with a lot of early board games a lot of them are just boring it's you're in that early stage of evolving the game mechanics and from our 21st century eyes, it's like, hooray, I'm rolling a dice and moving across a board. Congratulations. Yeah, there are a lot of them that don't really have an understanding of game mechanics as something separate from, as something that can be used to make it interesting. The content is what they want to be interesting, and the mechanics, they don't give a shit. Consume the propaganda. Become the new Soviet man. I should, I need to make a, I need to make a pin now of like a new Soviet them. Yeah, that, that would be pretty, pretty entertaining. A new Soviet, yeah. I don't know what the non-binary equivalent of a hammer and sickle would be. I'd have to come up with some, some kind of other weird tools. I'll just change it to two crossed paintbrushes because art. Or maybe you just do a big star in the center of a red field. Hello, Vietnam. Is that you I spy? So yeah, that's the Soviet the Soviet Union. If you're going to join a union, make sure it's not that one. So we have a segment on this podcast called Board Game Corner, where we talk about a board game, or card game sometimes. And today we're going to talk about Flux. Woo! One of my favorites. Flux. Today we're talking about Flux, uh, published by Looney Labs currently. Um, it was originally created in uh, 1996. It is a card game of constantly changing rules. It is a deck of madness. It is a deck of madness. Well, no, th there's another game that really qualifies as the deck of madness because Flux is at least internally consistent. Fair enough. Essentially, the deck has a number of cards, including a number of types of cards, including rules, goals, actions, and keepers. The goal, the way you win the game is by accomplishing one of the goal cards, which have different goals on them. The game starts with a very simple thing where every player gets a hand of three cards and the rule is draw one card from the deck and then play one card. You can play new rules, which change how the game functions, make you draw more cards or allow you to play more cards or put a limit on what how big your hand is or get rid of cards, all sorts of things. You can play a keeper, which sits in front of you and are generally used to fulfill the goals. You can play a goal, and typically you only have one of those out at a time, which says what specific thing you need in order to win. A goal could be something like space travel, where you need the moon and a rocket. Or it could be something like peace where you need the peace card out and you can't have the war card out. Or it could be something like have 10 keepers. 
they it varies quite a bit. And then you can also play action cards, which do a certain thing, whether that be letting you draw cards and play them outside of normal time, whether that let you take another turn, or swap the keepers that you have around. Essentially, the randomness of drawing cards and playing cards and how this works makes it a very... a high-variety, low-strategy game. The rules are constantly changing, the state of play is constantly changing, and... Essentially, all you can really hope to do is find a spot where you can take advantage of it and just, you know, play more. Flux has been around for a long time and has a load of expansions. There's a zombie one, there's a Monty Python one, there's a version with dice, there's a, a whole bunch of additional sets. It's currently on... Uh, 5th edition. There's a lot of different types. It's a lot of fun. It's just a simple box of cards, so it's quite cheap for the most part, and it usually can be played in like 5 minutes to half an hour. Yep. That was a, a regular staple of high school lunch hours. Yes. So, I recommend Flux. I really like it. It's a great pull it out to just have something to do real quick game. Once you've played it, you understand how the rules work pretty quickly. So, yeah, it, it's hard to explain. I mean, really, all you've all you've got to do is remember the 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 basic rule: draw one, play one. Yeah, all you, you can at any time you can see what the rules are. So, it seems like it would be quite simple. Yeah, I say play flux. Do it. Do it now. And that's our show. Thank, As always, thank you for listening. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Knoll Country. You can like, subscribe, do rate us on whatever your platform is. You can send us money. You don't have to. You could somehow. I don't have anything set up to allow you to do it, but... You could be good communists. Just just drop it in, drop it uh, underneath a tractor. We'll find it. Yes, Ed. Anything you want to pr- promote? Uh, you can follow me on Instagram at Anna Madness. Uh, you can see me being weird uh, on the Bird website at our Null Country uh, brand. Uh, don't at me if I got something horribly wrong on Soviet history, unless you actually want to teach teach me about it, and not just scream about it. Um, and also introducing, uh, you can go ahead and fund us by buying a Null Country branded Iron Curtain. It, uh, fits well over your game shelf and will help, uh, keep your board games from being infected by capitalism. But if you want to give your money to, uh, actual products and people, go ahead and, uh, send your money dollars to any of the number of charities for, uh, reproductive justice, LGBTQIA plus rights, and or, uh, Ukrainian relief and support funds. And go Knowles! Go Knowles!